I'm going to read a portion of God's Word from 1 Samuel in chapter 16. Please don't be uh, concerned that I'm going all the way back to 1 Samuel 16. Uh, I think I spoke on that uh, seven or eight years ago. Uh, but I'm going to read this to kind of bring us up to uh, where, we're, where we're going this morning as we try to uh, segue in as best we can. I'm not complaining about the uh, rotation the way it is. There's a church that we became acquainted with in Traveler's Rest that have three elders that share the preaching and they rotate every week using the same text, using the same book that is. And that amazes me. <laughs> I don't know how they can uh, keep that up. But uh, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, it came to pass at verse 6, it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely Jehovah's anointed is before him. But Jehovah said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For Jehovah seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but Jehovah looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath Jehovah chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath Jehovah chosen this. And Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Jehovah hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look upon. And Jehovah said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of Jehovah came mightily upon him. From that day forward, so Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I've asked Jamie Hardik, if he would uh, pray for God's blessing on the word declared. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and we give you praise, honor, and glory. Father, you alone are worthy to be praised and worshipped. We thank you for this time and together and hear your word being read and preached. We pray that you would be with David as the word goes forth. Pray that he would be faithful in expounding your word, that you would give him the words to say. Father, there are hearts that hear your word, that you would mold us and fashion us after your likeness. May you be glorified now, brother. Amen. 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 
The backstory on this portion that we've just read is summed up in the first verse of that chapter. And Jehovah said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill thy horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And it's also very pointed and conspicuous that we're told that upon his anointing that the Spirit of Jehovah came mightily, not just came, but came mightily upon David from that day forward. And the verse that follows says, Now the Spirit of Jehovah departed from Saul. I wonder if we can even imagine the ramifications of this as you read this book. You will learn the ramifications of it. God took his spirit away from Saul. We find, you will recall in Psalm 51, David crying out, O Lord, take not thy spirit from me. And undoubtedly he had reference to the fact that God had indeed taken his spirit away from Saul, from King Saul. He not only took the kingdom away and appointed another and anointed another king, but he took his spirit away from him. We've been looking, as I've already mentioned, for a, a good amount of time at the life of David. And we've remarked on this fact before also, that David is a type of the Christ. In this uh, passage that we just read, we learn of David for the first time. Now I realize that his name is mentioned twice in the book of Ruth, as the genealogy is uh, spoken of. Obviously, whoever wrote the book of Ruth wrote it after uh, the lineage had been born. But he mentions that name, David, uh, to be uh, in that lineage of the king, to be uh, the son of uh, and grandson of uh, Obed and uh, Jesse. But at any rate, in the narrative, if we can call it something different than Ruth, in this account that we just read from, this is the first time that we hear anything about David in the book of Samuel. We learn of him for the first time, and we're told that he was keeping his father's sheep. He was a shepherd. Being anointed king of Israel, now that should immediately make us think of someone else. A shepherd being anointed to be the king of Israel. And this anointing of David by Samuel at the direction of God himself sets the stage for the next several years of his life, of David's life. We've already noted how that the Spirit of God came upon him mightily from that day forward and that it departed from Saul and an evil spirit from Jehovah, an evil spirit from Jehovah came upon Saul, troubling him. And this, of course, largely accounts for the ensuing conflict and 
that persisted for a number of years, this conflict between David and Saul. But it didn't happen all at once. It took time, and there are several things that took place during that time, during that space of time. Saul took notice of David, and he made him his armor bearer, we are told. That was one of the first instances of Saul's taking any notice of David. And he also becomes Saul's, uh, I'm going to call it, consoling musician, playing the harp when Saul was troubled by this evil spirit. He became paranoid. He became, I suppose, what we would, what they would have called if they had the word back then, bipolar. He was distressed, troubled, and we'll use that word again, mightily, by this evil spirit. But David would play, play on the harp, and perhaps sing along with the tune, one of his psalms that he was already engaged in writing. But it would quiet and still this maniacal king Saul. Then, of course, what follows in the narrative is the challenge of Goliath, the giant Philistine challenging the army under Saul, challenging what David will remind Goliath is the army of the living God. And here's this giant Philistine challenging and all, every soldier of Israel cowers. And he's just asking, Goliath, that is, is asking for them to send a man. We're going to settle this whole thing man to man. I represent the Philistines. Send out your representative and we'll fight. And whoever loses, their men will become the slaves of the other. No one would go forth. Not even King Saul, who stood a head above the rest of the men of Israel and was a mighty warrior, but he wouldn't go forth either. They were all cowering. And in comes what many believe is the first notice of David. And it is, of course, the first notice of his fearlessness, of his faith in God, and of God's being with him. When he takes up this ch challenge of Goliath, and he goes forth. He tries on Saul's armor that the king offered him. But it didn't work for him. Probably wasn't the right size. We don't know that. But it wasn't comfortable on him. After all, he was a shepherd. So he went forth toward Goliath to meet him in the valley. To meet him with five smooth stones for his sling. And you know the history. We've all, most of us anyway, learned this story in Sunday school classes as small children. But he, he slung a stone, struck Goliath in the forehead, and the giant sunk down. It doesn't appear that he was dead, but he was knocked out. David ran up to and took the giant's own sword and cut off his head and brought it back to Saul. Now that would make Saul remember David, wouldn't it? 
And so he did. Who is this young man? He seems to have forgotten all about the uh, musician. He seems to have forgotten all about him being one of his armor bearers. But he wants to know who he is, and he wants him among his army. We could say at this point in time that David is on his way up and Saul on his way down. And then there's the friendship between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan's father looked at that askance. You see, he'd been given this evil spirit from God. And he's become also paranoid about even his own son. He's become paranoid. Perhaps there were rumors. And, and uh, maybe there was Twitter. And people uh, tweeting all through the society about um, this uh, friendship between David and Jonathan and perhaps about the fact that David had been anointed even though Samuel did his best to keep it from the general public. It got leaked, apparently. But Saul began looking at David with, uh, looking at him askance with, a, with an evil eye and having great concern over this young upstart, as they would say in Scotland, I think. But then David became a good uh, soldier in Saul's army. He was put over the head of a good number of men. And he came back victorious, so much so that the women came out dancing and singing. But they were singing that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. You can imagine how Saul reacted inside himself to that. Again, his jealousy is building up. The next thing we, we saw in the account was that David became son-in-law to the king. He had to earn it, but he, came, he became son-in-law to the king. There was a plot, really, to see David slain because Saul challenged him to go out and kill a hundred Philistines and bring back the foreskins as proof. And then you can have my daughter for your wife. Saul, of course, was hoping that David wouldn't succeed, that he couldn't defeat a hundred Philistines, but that they would slay him. It didn't work. So David became the son-in-law of the king. And he was faithful to the king. But the king couldn't get over this fear, this phobia, this paranoia that David was that one that Samuel told him would take his place. His neighbor, Samuel called him. Well, David was his neighbor in that sense, but so were hundreds of others. But he had his eye on this young man and every, every movement up the ladder, if you will, of David convinced Saul more and more that this was the one. And eventually he laid plans to kill David even when he was his son-in-law, to take him out of his bed, as it were, when David feigned sickness and sent his troops, Saul sent his troops, drag him out of bed and bring him here so I can kill him. At that point, David became a fugitive from Saul. He became also something of a Robin Hood, hiding in caves, the cave of Adullam, and other caves. 
And some of the oppressed people came around him. That's why I said he was something of a Robin Hood. He was, attract, he was attracting many, several hundred at least, of individuals that were oppressed by taxes and the, and the king taking away their sons for his army and taking away their daughters for chores in the kitchen of his castle and so on. So he becomes a fugitive from Saul and he becomes something of a bandit in Saul's eyes, but he's running from him constantly. And that goes on for a number of years. David even having opportunities to kill Saul, but he wouldn't do it because he said himself, he is the Lord's anointed. I cannot, I will not slay him, even though God in his providence has put him to sleep in front of me and I could take off his head, he wouldn't do it. But eventually, Saul is slain by the Philistines in Mount Gilboa, along with Jonathan and another son. They're slain by the Philistines. So the king is dead. David becomes king only just over Judah, not over all Israel. And he becomes king over Judah. And then he, uh, after several years, after a civil war with uh, the Benjamites uh, of Israel, he finally settles accounts with them and they agree to come together and he becomes king over all Israel. And then the most terrible story in the history of David the story, the account, the behavior that most affected his life, his sin. He falls into sin. He's, uh, ha he has wives. He has concubines. But he's not satisfied. And his eye strays. He sees Bathsheba, and he wants her. So he sends for her, and he takes her. You know the history there. She becomes pregnant. So now what is he going to do? The law would require that they be stoned to death. Well, he's wanting to protect Bathsheba. He's also wanting to protect David. So he comes up with a plot, sending for Uriah the Hittite, to come back out of the army and the battle and the engagement that he was involved in, suggesting to Uriah by messenger that he, he needs, needs to have a meeting with him. But then when Uriah gets there, all he wants to do is to, to tell him, go take uh, some R&R, &R, go spend some time with your wife. Of course, he wants Uriah to spend time with Bathsheba, so that when it becomes known that she is with child, that they can lay that to Uriah. But Uriah was so faithful to the king. You would really have thought that would have broken David's heart, wouldn't you? Uriah, David finds in the morning, he didn't go back to his home, to his wife. He's sitting outside on the floor, outside of David's door, where he sat all night. He was a loyal soldier of his king, faithful 
to a fault, that is, to his own detriment, incredibly faithful, not really to a fault. But of course, David had to come up with another plan. He sent, he sent word back, even using Uriah as his messenger, to send word back to Joab, his captain, to arrange that Uriah be killed in battle. So that was arranged. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then he murders her husband Uriah by proxy, using the Ammonites to kill Uriah. It seems like that David has become a little bit bipolar also. And he's thinking that he can do these things. And yet here's the man, remember, the man after God's own heart, God himself, Jehovah said, I have found me a man after my own heart. And I'm saying he must be bipolar now or behaving in a bipolar fashion. But isn't that what Paul's talking about in Romans 7? The thing that I would do, I do not. The thing that I would not do, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Was David not behaving wretchedly? Totally against his knowledge. Covering, trying to cover his sin. So he thinks that everything is okay. Uriah is slain in battle. He takes Bathsheba to be his wife. She bears him a son. Perhaps they didn't have great calendars or calculators and they, nobody, nobody supposedly was supposed to know that she was two or three months pregnant and they were married. But at any rate, David's pretending to himself mostly that everything's all right. And you remember how, how that God sent Nathan. God's patience came to an end, waiting for David to repent of this horrible sin. And he sent his prophet Nathan, his spokesman, to David. Nathan told that clever little parable, that story about that one neighbor that had one single ewe lamb that he loved. And a wealthy neighbor that had hundreds and thousands of flocks. Didn't want to use any to feed a guest. And so he took that neighbor's one ewe lamb, had it slain and fed it to his traveling guest. David was angry. And he said, that man will pay fourfold for that. Nathan said, you are the man. You are the man in this story. And that crushed the king. He knew immediately that Nathan was right and knew the truth and spoke the truth. He said, I have sinned against God. So Nathan told him what was going to happen, and that's in, in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan told him, said the Lord, has forgiven your sin. But, and what a huge but. He says, because of your sin, because you've killed Uriah, because you've taken his wife, 
He says, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son, for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. The sword shall never depart from thy house. You use the sword against your eye, it will never depart from thy house. You committed adultery with this man's wife. Behold, a neighbor will take your wives in the sight of all Israel. Well, it didn't take long for this prophetic, this curse from God to begin to unfold. David's son Amnon just was all twitterpated over Tamar, his half-sister, Absalom's sister, Tamar. And just to cut to the chase, just to cut the story a little, story a little short, he connived and raped her. And she went off with her head covered. He wouldn't even acknowledge. He wouldn't even go to the king as she requested and ask for her hand in marriage. She said the king won't deny you, but he wouldn't even go and ask. So she was despoiled. Her life ruined. And Absalom determined from that day that he was going to have vengeance on Amnon, his half-brother. He waited two years. And he cooked up his own plot, saw to it that Amnon was slain, and he fled. And then he came back eventually with some help from Joab and so on, and, he, and the king eventually let him see his face and kissed him. And the king evidently, in his continued foolishness, thought that Absalom and he were reconciled. But Absalom was plotting already to take the throne and to kill his father in doing so. So you know how that enveloped the whole nation and how that there was a civil war and David fleeing from Absalom, his son. Absalom was killed in the battle even though they were evidently outnumbered, David's troops won the civil war and Absalom was slain. And by the time that David got over Absalom's death and came to his senses at the prodding of Joab, if you don't straighten your act out, Joab said, Israel's going to leave you. So he straightened himself out and came to some of the people and started behaving as the proper king. But they hadn't called him back to Jerusalem yet. And he wanted the tribe of Judah to call him back first because they were his kinsmen, closest kinsmen. And they weren't doing it. And he did send Abiathar and Zadok, the priest, to go and and kind of uh, whisper in their ear, why don't you bring the king back? 
David was waiting. And that's the point that we left our narrative at the end of last year. David waiting to be called back. And I would suggest, and it's largely imagination, I concede, that we might see something here of David as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ coming back. And I've asked myself, and I would ask each one of us, are we, are we crying? As we read at the end of the scriptures, even so, come Lord Jesus, are we praying and crying for our Lord's return? This is, in a sense, what David was wanting. He wanted, he wanted his people to ask him to come back. We often see in his life David as a type in various circumstances. Even the account that he gave Saul when he told him he would fight Goliath. He said that, that a lion and a bear took out of my flock one of my sheep and I killed them and took the sheep out of his mouth. Both a lion and a bear. And don't we see in that a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has rescued his sheep from that lion that goes about roaring, seeking whom he may devour. We often see David in his life as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially as the shepherd king. Should we not then expect to see Christ in David's Psalms? There are many who make this case against psalm singers, saying that we can't sing about Jesus if we only sing psalms. But we need to ask, is Christ not to be found in the psalms? These people make that claim. And it's all based on the fact that the name Jesus isn't in the psalms. Well, the name Jesus was given to him at the incarnation. Christ is, is not really a name. It's what he is, the Christ. The anointed one is what that name means, what that title means. Consider the second psalm. David is the writer of the second psalm. And that's attested in Acts 4, 25 and 26. David wrote these words under inspiration. Let's take a look at that second psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds asunder, and so on. And the people, the church, in the cha chapter 4 of Acts, said this is, this is a fulfillment of that, with Herod and Pilate conspiring together to slay Jesus Christ. Indeed, Christ is in the Psalms, and not just only the second psalm. Charles Spurgeon said in reference to this second psalm, 
He says an apt title for that would be the Messiah the Prince. Messiah the Prince. You see, Messiah is the Hebrew for anointed. Christos is the Greek for anointed. He was the anointed. In fact, in many or most of our English translations, that Acts 4.25, that's what it says, the anointed. But some of them also, it's divided up evenly uh, among the 75 translations that you can look at on the web. It's pretty much evenly differed between Messiah, Christ, and anointed. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed. That's Jesus Christ in the Psalms. He is the anointed. And again, there's typology. David was anointed king. And Jesus Christ, the Christ, is the anointed of God, even as David was. Not only that, but Paul reveals to us in Romans 15, 3, that it is Christ speaking in Psalm 69, 9, when he said, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell upon me. That was Christ speaking. David writing the Psalm, but it was Christ speaking. There are actually many occasions in the Psalms where there is some ambiguity. I think that's a fair word to use. That we struggle to see, well, is this about David? Because Christ is referred to as David in many of the Psalms. Even as he's referred to as the son of David in the New Testament. There's a certain ambiguity as to who the referent may be. But the point is that we certainly find Christ in the Psalms. In the 89th, in the 132nd, remember David, it begins the 132nd in all his afflictions. Remember David. And he goes on in that 132nd Psalm, for thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. And again, Jehovah hath sworn unto David in truth. Much of the language and the covenant that God made with David shares that ambigu ambiguous language as well. If we look at that for just a brief moment in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We see... If we look uh, at uh, verse 11, as from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will cause thee to rest from all thine enemies. He's speaking to David. Moreover, Jehovah telleth thee that Jehovah will make thee a house. Okay, is that, is he talking, is that David as a type of Christ, that he's gonna make him a house? Or are we talking here about the house that Jesus Christ said, I will build my house? That's what I'm referring to as ambiguities. When thy days are fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. Now that's because Christ is in the lineage of David going through Solomon and so on. 
But he says, I will set thy seed after thee that shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom. He's going to establish through David the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. And yet he's going to establish the kingdom of David also. So you have this overlap that amounts to ambiguity sometimes. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Oh, wait a minute. That can't be David. Forever. He's talking about someone else. He's talking about the Christ and that's what we see in a number of the Psalms. This overlap talking about both David and about his greater son. If he commit iniquity, again, it can't be David. It cannot be, or I mean, it can't be. It has to be David and his physical seed. It cannot be the sinless, perfect Christ. David was a type of the Christ. God chose to use such devices as types for the instruction of his people in the scriptures. And we can sit and discuss which items are really types of David and which are not, but there are a, a sufficient number of them to consider David to be one of the premier, if we can, types of Jesus Christ. And frankly, it came to my mind that if David had only left us Psalm 51. If that's all he had left, which of course he didn't only leave us that, he left us many, many, many lessons in his life, good and bad, but good lessons, not necessarily of good. But these, these, these things are patterns, they're parables, even that word is used in the New Testament sometimes. Proverbs. These are things that are synonymous with type, and there are many of them. We read, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam unto Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the likeness of Adam's transgression. And speaking of Adam, he said, who is a figure of him that was to come? The Bible is replete with types, symbols, figures, parables, proverbs, Shadows that point us to Jesus Christ. I struggle not. I know it's been said that Joseph isn't a type. I think the argument was that because he's it's not mentioned as a he's not mentioned as a type in the New Testament, but I don't know that you can find a, a, a life that that fits the activity of Jesus Christ more than Joseph's. But we may say that David was a shadow. A shadow of good things to come. In Hebrews 10, we have uh, considered this use of this term shadow. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a feast day or a new moon or a Sabbath day, which are a shadow of things to come. 
good things to come, but the body is Christ. David, a shadow of the Christ. Moses, we could say a figure of our prophet, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, a figure or a shadow or a type of our great high priest. David, a type of our king, the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. I have to concede that that this next thought is uh, just that, a thought. We read in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows. And I've suggested that there was something of an interim time. David had been greeted while he's waiting for his people to call him back to the throne. He's been greeted by Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. The war was ended, but now what was David to do? He's sitting there waiting. What do we do when we're waiting? We think. What was he thinking about? He just got over weeping over the death of his son Absalom. Absalom. Surely it, was, it would not be a, a stretch to imagine that he was thinking about all his sin. That it brought all these things upon him, rehearsing it in his mind. He could have returned triumphantly like Roman generals would do and others, heads of countries. He could have returned triumphantly to take his throne back, but he didn't, he's waiting. And while he's waiting, he's sitting there, remembering that promised curse the sword shall never depart. And remembering the death of his son, the child of Bathsheba, remembering the death of his son, Amnon, remembering more recently the death of his son, Absalom. And it doesn't seem that he ever knew about the death of Adonijah. It's recorded in 1 Kings whether David had already passed the scene or not. When Adonijah was slain because he tried to do the same thing and take away the throne, take it away from Solomon as David lay dying or dead on his bed. So there's Bathsheba's child, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. David said, that man shall pay fourfold. David was thinking about that. I believe it's not recorded, but I believe that he couldn't help but be thinking about that. And that he was something of a man of sorrows as he reflected upon these things. He might be considered a sorrowing man a man of sorrows, knowing much grief. But this is not to say that he was here typing Jesus Christ. There is an astronomical, an infinite difference between their sorrows. David was sorrowing for the sins that he had committed. 
while Christ was sorrowing for the sins of his people, including those of King, King David. And that he was going to be made sin to suffer the penalty due his people. That was why Christ, why Jesus was a man of sorrows. David could never come up to that even in type. One has written of Christ that he was the Lord of grief, the Prince of pain, the Emperor of anguish, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We know nothing of the grief that Christ felt. And frankly, we can't even imagine it because we can't imagine being perfect and sinless. He had to, he had to live in a world of sin. He had, he had to be bumping shoulders and elbows with sinners every day. He was surrounded by sinners, surrounded by sin. He saw it every day. He heard it every day. How can we understand that pure nature of Christ moving about in this foul world? We can't. Him touching the world and the world touching him. I know he's God. And God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He's God, but he's also man. And he's the mystery of the incarnation. There he was walking on earth. Being subjected to sin everywhere around him. Even his own disciples. Let him down. And as a man, I don't believe he was a stoic. He was feeling. He wasn't an unfeeling man. He sighed at the unbelief of his disciples. He wept at the late grave of Lazarus. He felt. He hungered. He wept. He sighed. Our Lord's pure nature must have been, certainly was peculiarly sensitive of any contact with sin. And yet there he was. How could we ever understand that? His disciples Christ must say of them, O ye of little faith. Another writer said, what they learned they forgot. What they remembered, they did not practice. And what they practiced at one time, they failed at another. Like Job's friends, they were miserable comforters. One denied him, one betrayed him. He was exceeding sorrowful even unto death. But while we were yet sinners, <laughs> he died. He died for us while we were yet sinners. He said in Luke, as he ordained the table that we are about to come to, he said, with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
We'll see before us the symbols, the types, the shadows, whatever we want to call them, appointed by Christ to remember him, to remember his loving death, his dying love for us, to commune with him, to commune with others who have the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ Jesus. To take these symbols, the bread, his body, the wine, his blood. And so we shall. I've asked Neil and Josh if they would assist me in, in serving these elements as we approach the table. I would remind you of what Paul has written. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto